0: When Israel looked at other nations and said, we want a king like other nations, in effect they were saying, we no longer want God as the foundation of our nation. They didn't bother when they looked at the other nations and saw what they thought was greener grass. They never stopped to think, what are these other kings like? What is the foundation of their governance? What political philosophy What checks and balances are there to a tyrannical king? Should we be wanting to be like other nations? How could you do any better than God as your king? The true God. No repentance, no remorse that perhaps the problem isn't God as our king. Perhaps the problem is we're not obeying our God as king. Maybe our problems are because of our own apostasy and our own disobedience. But this isn't fallen human nature to think that way. When life isn't making us happy, we look to others to blame. Or we look at our circumstances and maybe eventually we say, well, if God is sovereign over my circumstances, then he is to blame. Grievous sin to blame God for your unhappiness. And so at a time in our nation's history when we looked across the pond and saw Europe becoming very powerful, very mechanized, moving into the industrial age, we were afraid we would be left behind. And so the movers and shakers in the northeast of our country, you know the place where all kinds of cults and error and apostasy has emanated, you tell me a cult, I'll show you where it originated in the northeast in our country. These were the same people looking to Prussia and saying, we need an education system like theirs. Never bothering to say, what is the foundation of that education system? The, the foundation was enlightenment thinking. What is the enlightenment? Was the belief that through human reason and science, we could answer all of the important questions in life and find all of all of the solutions to our ills. In other words, we don't need revelation from God anymore. Through the Enlightenment, we can figure things out for ourselves. Boy, doesn't that sound like Genesis 3? You know, I don't need God to tell me right and wrong. I'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and determine it for myself. Adam and Eve, at the heart of the matter, were discontent with paradise. That ought to tell you something. And we've inherited that discontentment, that sinful rebellion that says, I deserve better. And maybe God's holding back. And so we look for other things besides God to satisfy our deepest needs. And so we imported an enlightenment based education model. Why did the Prussians want this education model? They said, we need to disconnect the students, the kids, from their parents' influence. That is a lot of power to give an entire nation's children over to the state. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have good and godly Christian teachers and leaders and administrators, but we can all agree that after over a uh, hundred In 50 years of this philosophy, something has gone terribly wrong. We're sending our kids now into a school where we have to pray and fight for their worldview and for their faith to stay intact. All because we looked to another country that said, we need... An education system different than what God has outlined in Deuteronomy 6. Very simple education system. It's worked great for believers for thousands of years. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And these commands I give you today shall be on your hearts, and you shall teach them diligently to your children as you rise up and as you lay down and as you go out and as you come in. That is a great education system right there. Eventually, what happened to Prussia, the German Revolution, and then you have Hitler. Now, somebody who wants to take all that power that country gave to its political leaders and exploit it for evil purposes. Give the hearts of our children to someone other than God, and disaster is sure to follow. So, hey, a plug for uh, our own Christian school. The curtain behind me was part of the decorations for the Heritage Oak School auction dinner. Huge success. I don't know how it did financially, but because it intended to exalt Christ, how could it not be but a success? I'm thankful for that opportunity we have in our community for a Christian education. Today we want to look at another contrast. We've seen two contrasts so far in the book of Samuel. A contrast in parenting, and I've just spoke to that. We contrasted Hannah's parenting versus um, Eli's. And then we contrasted God as king versus man as king. And we're going to tunnel in a little deeper and look at two kinds of human leaders or two human kings Saul versus David. Saul, a man after his own heart, versus David, a man after God's own heart. So a contrast in leadership. In 1 Samuel 8, we saw that the self-absorbed Israelites rejected God as their king and wanted a human king like the other nations. So God said... I will let you make your bed and then force you to sleep in it. I will give you a king after your own heart. I will give you someone just as self-absorbed as you are, so that Israel would understand its foolishness and repent and turn back to God as king, and God would give them a king after his own heart, eventually pointing to Jesus Christ, the ultimate king after God's own heart. Because he is God. We're going to see this morning that Saul embodies the sinfulness of mankind. This, this is the root of our, our evil, this self-absorbed, self-centered pride. This self-exaltation and wanting to be exalted by man instead of wanting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from God. I want us to be careful this morning not to focus on any easy targets in your life an an employer, a pastor. We are all called to lead as Christians at one time or another in various capacities. We've all been given delegated authority from the King of Kings, from Jesus Christ. And yet because of our residual sin nature, we all have the capacity to become self-absorbed leaders like Saul whether you're the head of your family or um, your mom leading your children or you're leading a small group or a ministry here at church or whatever position of authority you've been given in the workplace, we need to be oh so careful of the tendency to make everything about me. So three marks of a self-absorbed leader. Number one, a lack of obedience to authority a lack of obedience to authority. Why does this happen? Because you think, I am the authority. I am the authority. I don't need to obey leadership. I don't need to submit to anyone. Saul, given this very important position as king over Israel, but he still had to answer to God. And we saw that God gave Saul uh, an anointing a spirit of of power for leadership, established him as king, gave him an early victory in front of the people so the people would have confidence in Saul's leadership. Now we pick up the story, and Samuel tells Saul to go to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel to arrive, and then Samuel would give instruction then. So first Samuel 13:8 Now he waited 7 days according to the appointed time set by Samuel but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him so Saul was losing his grip of leadership on the people And he didn't wait very long He took matters into his own hands And he said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Now, this was no place for the king to be offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. This is the office of the prophet-priest. And those lines were not to be blurred. And he offered the burnt offering. And you might be thinking at this point, well, that's a good thing. He offered a sacrifice to God. But we don't know what was in his heart. This wasn't an offering from a pure heart. This was a pragmatic, look, we got to do something, otherwise all the people are going to flee and I'm going to lose my army. Some people were fleeing and hiding in caves, we read. As soon as he finished, as soon as he finished, I love God's timing. This was a test. Will this king I appointed trust me and obey me? God is testing Saul. And he fails the test. And he finds out his feeling great immediately because he finishes the sacrifice and who shows up? Samuel. Behold Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. This euphemism in the Hebrew is kind of like a flattery, buttering him up. Oh, hey, Samuel. So glad you're here. It wasn't a, Where have you been? He knew he had done wrong. It's like when kids get caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And my, you look lovely this morning, mother. (laughs) What did you do when your husband brings you flowers? (laughs) Yeah, hopefully it's out of pure motives. But lack of faith leads to lack of obedience. Lack of faith leads to lack of obedience. If you want to know where this lack of obedience to authority comes from, it's lack of faith in the true God. You've gotten things out of perspective. God has gotten small in your mind, and you've gotten big. People have gotten big in your mind. Other people. You care what they think about more than what God thinks about. One of my favorite counseling books. I so recommend ordering a copy of this book. Ed Welch's When People Are Big and God Is Small. He he writes this, fear of man is always part of a triad that includes unbelief and disobedience. So where does you see disobedience, where does it come from? Unbelief, fear of man. They, they, they go together. If you had a healthy fear of the Lord, you wouldn't disobey him. And this unbelief is either wrong thinking about God, He's too small to meet my needs. He can't deliver the happiness that I'm really looking for. And so I need an alternative. Even if that means disobeying God's word, I think in this case I'm justified. These are these thoughts that go through our head. Whether consciously or whether we don't know we're having these thoughts, once you sit down with someone in a counseling setting, you can dig these things out of them and see where is that unbelief. Right? Paul says, take every thought captive for Christ. A mind left to its own is a terrible thing. It's amazing what we will convince ourselves of. To the point where somebody is acting in unbelief, fear of man and disobedience, and the rest of us are going, yikes! How do they not see this in their own life? How did you get to this point? You thought God would be pleased with this? And hopefully that that moment, that Nathan the prophet moment with David, you are that man, right? Snaps them out of their sinful stupor, but sometimes it doesn't snap them out of it. It can be so entrenched in people that at one point Jesus says, after you've gone to your brother and he doesn't listen and so you take two or three with you, if they're still locked up in this unbelief and disobedience, you may have to excuse them from the church for a time until the reaping and sowing effect bring them back to repentance. This is how serious God takes us. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You're not going to believe in me, Jesus says, because you are so busy wanting the praises of man. If they believed in Jesus, they thought it would cost them their position of prominence, and so they cared too much about the praises of man instead of the praises of God. God does say that He will exalt the humble. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant, at night before bed when we live a life of humility and obedience and service to the Lord. Rather than trying to sleep at night wrestling with, it's not fair, people don't give me the glory I'm due, I get passed over all the time for promotion, yada, 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 yada. And you think the answer is to make everybody else Conform to your authority and you're not listening to God. This is a more serious offense to God than we understand. You might think that what Saul did was a small offense and we'll just teach him a lesson and move on. But look look what Samuel says as the Lord speaks through Samuel the prophet. You have acted foolishly. That is God's sternest rebuke. I've often said that I would rather someone call me a sinner than a fool because of my pride. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Meaning, you and your sons and your grandsons, this would have been the kingdom. But the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Why is this sin so devastating? At the root of it, when we choose to disobey God, we are saying, God, I know clearly what your command is, I know clearly from your word what your will is, but I have put you on trial and have found you to come up wanting. And so I took matters into my own hands. See, it's not a small thing. It's impugning the character of God when we choose to disobey. We're saying in our hearts, God is not someone to be trusted. I am smarter than he is. I am wiser. I am better. His way isn't very loving. My way is more loving These things are the ultimate snub against God. We don't like it when people do this to us. And we're sinful, imperfect people. How much more should God be offended when people question His judgment and His authority? The second mark of a self-absorbed leader is a lack of love to subordinates. A lack of love to subordinates. You're so entrenched in self-love, you don't have anything to give to anyone else. Now, Samuel um, allows Saul to still function as king. God is still going to allow Saul to function as king while he is, in the meantime, going to anoint a replacement king. But at this point, Saul is still king of Israel. He's still the commander of, of Israel's army. And they're chasing down their mortal enemies, the Philistines, and they've got them on the run. And Saul makes this oath. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself of my enemies. Think of the amount of self-centeredness and self-absorption that would take your troops who are fighting, they're tired, they're hungry, and you're so concerned with your own glory. He doesn't even say until we avenge God of His enemies. Yes, there is a time for fasting. Trusting in the Lord's strength and not your own strength. But that's not what's going on here. This was Saul impressing people trying to build himself up in front of his troops. We will not rest or eat until I've been avenged of my enemies. In the meantime, his son Jonathan had just scored a very important victory. Just Jonathan and his armor bearer came upon a Philistine garrison, an outpost. They were heavily outnumbered. And they said, we will go up and talk to the outpost, and if such and such a thing happen, that'll be a sign from God that God's going to give us a victory. They get the sign they're looking for, and God indeed gives them this great victory. And it encourages and inspires the people of God. God is on our side. Now they're ready to fight. And we never hear any praise from Saul. No praise to the Lord, no praise to his son, Instead, he makes this rash oath and says, no one's to eat until, we're, until I'm avenged to my enemies. Well, his son Jonathan comes back. He, he never heard the command. And they're, they're in the forest and the Bible tells us that he sees some honey. He's like, oh, honey. I mean, this is a rarity. Oh, I'm famished. How refreshing that would be. And he, he dips the end of his staff in the honey and tastes it. And his his countenance is brightened and he's enlightened and, you know, when, when you're exhausted and, and hungry and famished, that it doesn't take much to kind of, oh. and the men who see him taste the honey. <sighs> don't you know that your dad commanded none of us to eat? And he, he says right there in the story, yeah, well, my, my dad wasn't thinking. What son has, hasn't said that before, right? <laughs> I have two sons myself. I'm sure they've said it in their hearts. i borrow a, a, a line I love from, from Craig Bauer. He says, you know, for those of you who fancy themselves rebels without a cause, independent, I don't need any help from people, stick it to the man, I'm my own man, Careful what you're teaching your kids, because someday when they hit their teenage years, guess who the man is? You. Yeah. And here's Jonathan. Yeah, my dad. (laughs) That was foolish of him. On a side note here, I wanted to point out something very beautiful. One commentator suggested that Later, you know, Jonathan and David become best friends. And Saul gets so jealous of David, he tries to have him murdered, tries to have him killed. And Jonathan, as his friend, would come to him in secret and encourage him and warn him. And the commentator was wondering if not that Jonathan had told this story to his friend David... Hey, you think you have it bad. It's my own dad. And one time I just dipped my staff in honey after this great victory against the Philistines and he wanted to have me killed. And he didn't see how blessed that honey was for me, how it brought strength and encouragement to me and how we could have pursued the Philistines with even more vigor. And later David would write in Psalm 19, about how much God's word refreshes and encourages and enlightens us. And David would even say, it's sweeter even than the honey from the honeycomb. Maybe God inspired that line through David's friendship with Jonathan and Jonathan's experiences. Certainly the word of God does refresh us in that way. And woe to leaders who keep the word of God out of the hands of God's army. I'm so enthralled and so self-absorbed with my own agenda that God's leaders would keep the word of God from His people and replace it with their own ideas and their own stories and their own vision. So, Saul's ready to go into battle, but God stalls their advance. And Saul says, something's wrong here. Somebody must have sinned. Who sinned? (laughs) Doesn't look at himself. He assumes somebody else did. And so, no one would step forward, so they cast lots, which was a way of uh, employing the providence of God for God to reveal who the sinner was, He says this, For as the Lord lives, who who delivers Israel? Though, or even if it turns out to be Jonathan my son, the sinner he shall surely die. He didn't know it was his own son who had sinned. And so he makes this another rash oath in front of the people. It says, but not one of all the people answered him because they know who did it. And they love Jonathan. He's a great champion of Israel. And I think at this point they realize what a horse is, you know what, Saul is. And he's really going to do this out of his pride. Ironically, Saul builds an altar to ask God for instructions here. He doesn't care about the worship of God, he's just going through the motions. At the end of the day, it comes to light that it was Jonathan and Saul's ready to kill Jonathan and the people come to Jonathan's rescue. People have to save Jonathan from his own father. Self-love leaves no room to love others. James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. If you've ever come to a place in your life where you're so locked up in your self-absorption and self-love, you left a trail of misery and disaster behind you. All the while probably feeling completely justified, you're the victim, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. 2 Timothy Timothy 3.2, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What's at the head of this list? For men will be lovers of self. And the rest of the list follows. This is how serious love of self becomes. Holding to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, Paul tells Timothy. Holding to a form of godliness. So they may profess Christ. They they may even read their Bible. They may have some external good traits. And yet we become self-absorbed in our own authority, and in, in our own intelligence, in our own great ideas, in our own righteousness, that we end up with a form of godliness, but we deny its power. What is the power of our godliness as Christians? What does is, what is the New Testament say? What is the source of our power? The gospel. It's... Foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when we know the gospel rightly and we dwell on the gospel, there is absolutely no room for this kind of self-absorbed leadership. Think of what the gospel says. I, a wretched sinner, an enemy of God, deserving of hell, God himself comes and dies in my place so he can have eternal relationship with me, right relationship with me. How can anyone boast in themselves while at the same time acknowledging the power of God in the gospel? It's completely incongruous. They don't fit. Unless you want to boast that you're a more wretched sinner than everyone else on the planet, but that how does that make you look good in the eyes of the world? So, when we focus on the cross, that is the, the corrective to this self-absorbed position that our fallen hearts take. And we're going to see Samuel point this out to Saul. As the story continues... God leads the Israelites in an attack against the Amalekites. And the Amalekites have been a thorn in Israel's flesh forever. And here they had a chance to wipe out all of the Amalekites. And God, we have said, is just in doing that. He is a just and holy and good God. His judgments are perfect. When he decides an entire nation needs to be obliterated from the planet, That is his call. And so he says, I will give you victory over the Amalekites. Utterly destroy everything. Take no prisoners and no plunder. And he gives Israel the victory, but Samuel keeps King Agag alive so he can mock him and humiliate him and build himself up in the eyes of the surrounding nations, and they keep the choice animals alive. And then lie about their intentions. So Samuel says to Saul, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? Let's stop there for a second and think about that. Who are we compared to God? Whatever position of authority God has given you, think of your humble beginnings. A helpless baby, sinful, prone to tantrums, weak, without wisdom. Think of all the foolishness you partook of in your youth, or maybe yesterday, Who are we to brag and boast and put ourselves up as these great leaders? Only by the grace of God, this, this high privilege of delegated authority he gives us. Saul, you were nobody from nowhere. You were from the smallest tribe. You weren't even the oldest son in your family. And you're out looking for lost donkeys. And God said, that's the one I choose as king. He didn't earn it. He didn't have to run a campaign. He just got appointed. And his only qualities were tall and handsome. You have no control over tall and handsome. At least if he had some great character traits he's been working on his whole life, that would be something he could brag about. Not that he should. But tall and handsome... I love Nathan, as a basketball player likes to teach the youth about how can these seven-foot tall NBA people brag? You're taller than everyone else, and there just so happens to be a game where being tall is to your advantage. If there's no basketball, you're great at putting cans on the top shelf, and that's, that's about it, and you pay extra for your clothing. I know. The things that we'll brag about. He says, you were, you were little, you were nobody. God's the one who appointed you king. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil, the plunder, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And you know how he responds... He says, I did. I did obey the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Sounds like a baby, a little kid. I did. And I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. Look, I brought back a gift. And I've utterly destroyed the Malachites, but the people took some of the spoil sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, just a sacrifice to the Lord your God, your God, not the Lord my God, the Lord your God, at Gilgal. He knows he's done wrong and he's so self-absorbed and cares so much about his own glory that he can't even repent in humility. No, no godly remorse. Just sorry that he got caught. That's what Paul calls worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. The thing that struck me here more than anything else as I prepared this week, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks, this man has become so self-absorbed that he came this close to killing his own son, but he won't kill Israel's sworn enemy. Whoa. Yeah, whoa. How did that happen? He's been blinded by his own sin, almost killed his own son in front of all the troops to save face and build up his own glory, but wouldn't obey a command from the Lord to kill this murderous King Agag. The Amalekites were known for attacking the weak, the women, the children, the disabled, way back when Israel was wandering through the wilderness. Like I said, they've been a thorn in Israel's flesh for a long time. And because he didn't utterly wipe out the Amalekites, hundreds of years later, another Amalekite would come and almost wipe out the entire Jewish nation, a a man by the name of Naaman, right in the book of Esther. Is it Haman? Sorry. Thank you. Haman. Different story, Naaman. Haman, an Amalekite. So Samuel takes a sword and the king, King Agag, says, hey, let's let bygones be bygones. And Samuel does obediently what Saul refused to do and kills King Agag. The verb in the Hebrew is the strongest Hebrew verb form the NIV says he hacked a gag to pieces that's probably the the best translation this is what god thinks about your gift Saul this is a treacherous man who deserves death it's not for you to decide to disobey god's commands and the Samuel tells Saul, and this this is the line that you triple underline in your book, in your Bible. You highlight it. You memorize it. The antidote to self-centeredness. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed or to listen or to obey is better than the fat of rams. you are self-centered and self-absorbed and disobedient to the Lord, you will convince yourself that you are making sacrifices to Him. I've given up so much to, to lead for God. God doesn't want your sacrifices if they're mixed with disobedience. In fact, God compares rebellion or disobedience to the sin of divination and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. How can he compare these things? Where, where's the comparison? Why do people go to a diviner or a medium? What are they seeking? They want wisdom on how to live. Instead of going to God, they don't want to do what God says, so they go to a diviner or a medium. And why do people practice idolatry? Why worship a carved idol. Because a carved idol can't tell you what to do with authority. And so even if you call yourself a Christian, and oh, I'm not an idolater, and I'm not, I don't go to a medium, I don't read the horoscopes, I don't, whatever, go to palm readers. If you're not obedient to the word of God, you might as well go to those people. You have the truth and you refuse to obey. That is no better than seeking the truth from somewhere else. At the end of the day, you're really looking for someone to tell you what you already want to do. You just want to be justified in your belief. And now we have the internet. You can find someone who will agree with you. Just Google what it is that you want and you will find an expert who will give you the green light. Loving God and others always means obedience to God's commands. Loving God, if you say you love God and you love others, the two great commandments, then you must be obedient to God's commands. You cannot say, I love God, and then turn around and disobey His commands. Easy to say you love your spouse. Do you love sacrificially? Do you demonstrate your love? So easy to say, I love you. We you tell young people who are twitterpated in love and they, they're, they're ready to tie the knot, are you sure you love this person the way God has commanded you to love? Are you ready for that commitment? So we have to find out what God defines as love. And Oh, is that what it means? Well, that's a whole different story. It doesn't mean don't get married. It means start practicing how to love the way Jesus loved. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. How clear could that be? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, "...whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you." As believers, we believe when we put our faith in Christ, we're immediately forgiven of our sins and fit for heaven. But then the process of sanctification begins. Where we begin to love ourselves and the world less and less and less and love God more and more and more. Where we turn from obedience to our commands and turn to obedience to God's commands more and more and more each day. And He promises us the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to enlighten our minds to the Scriptures and to give us the power And motivation to trust and obey. Obedience doesn't come naturally to us. Thank God for the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Loving Jesus means trusting in his character so much that even when your flesh is saying, that doesn't make sense, let's do it my way, let's do it the way that I think will bring me happiness. But if it's in opposition to what Jesus has taught, trust in His character. He is good. He is perfect. He is righteous. And He gave His life for you. You can trust this God. Obey His commands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You as sinners saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who obeyed You perfectly and became our representative on the cross because we could not obey. We are so sorry, Lord, that he had to take our punishment for us that we could not live lives of obedience. Thank you though, Lord, that you have not condemned us to eternal damnation but instead have given us the free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ and For those who are in Christ, there is now no more condemnation. And Lord, we no longer have to be slaves to our sin nature, but we can be slaves to Christ. Teach us that that is a good thing. That true freedom is the freedom to submit to God. Not freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. Lord, I pray this message will saturate our hearts and spread around this globe, changing hearts one at a time, so one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God and for our good, amen. Amen. God bless you.